0: I know this is crosswalk Colorado Springs on one hundred point seven the word here's your host Bob Bender well welcome Colorado Springs Castle Rock Pueblo thank you for joining us today this is the day the Lord has made we 'll rejoice and be glad in it thanks for joining us it's going to be a very very meaningful program, something that's going to touch you uh, where you are and hopefully take you where you want to be and where the Lord wants you to be. As I said, this is 100.7, the Word, so I'm going to give you the Word. The Word for this evening comes out of Ezekiel 47, verses 1 through 12, as the water flows from the temple... It's a 1,000 cubits out, it's ankle deep. Another 1,000 cubits out, it's knee deep. Another 1,000 cubits out, it's waist deep. And another 1,000 cubits out, it's deep enough to swim in where there are living creatures and fruit trees and all kinds of good things. You know, you would think water flowing from the temple, it would be higher closer to the temple. But no, the farther you get away from the temple, the higher it is. I think that's God's vision for the nations, to take the water of life to the nations. But my question to you, and my question to me, how deep in the water of God's blessings am I? Are you? Are you just ankle-deep? or knee-deep, or waist-deep, Lord, help us to be water flowing over us, deep enough for us to swim in, so all kinds of good things happen. May the presence of the Lord so engulf you that you're just blessed today with the very presence of the Lord overwhelming you, overcoming you, inundating you, deep enough to swim in where all the good stuff is. Okay, Lord, lead us to your presence that just takes over our lives. Help us not to be satisfied with ankle deep or knee deep or waist deep, but just jump in the deep end of the pool, cannonball in, Lord, so we experience all you have for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, speaking of deep water, we're going to be into some deep water this afternoon and we're going to talk about what about Bob? What about Bob is a is a classic comedy with Bill Murray and Richard Dreyfus and it's 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 a good movie. I think there's one scene, there might be some cussing, I I'm, I'm not sure, but anyway, we're gonna talk about what about Bob. In fact today we're going to talk about what about Bob, and what about Matt, and what about Chris, and what about Brooke, and what about Jennifer, and what about you. What about you? You see, I am confused and need your help. I just don't know what to do with myself. On the one hand, I am encouraged to love myself On the other hand, I am encouraged by Jesus. If I love my life, I will lose it. On the one hand, I am told to die to myself, and yet, on the other hand, I am told to live for Jesus. On the one hand, I am told to have a strong self-regard for myself, and on the other, I am to regard others as more important than me. On the one hand, I'm told that I'm a person of great worth and that God don't make no junk, as they say. On the other hand, I'm told that I'm a sinner, depraved and lost, bound for the eternal junkyard called hell without Christ. So what am I to do with myself? Well, let me just give you some answers that are not appropriate, I would discourage you from going down these roads. What are you to do with yourself? Well, self centeredness is not the answer. Paul writes, do nothing out of selfishness or selfish conceit or considerations, Philippians 2 3. Don't be don't be like diatrophies who loved to have the preeminence. Self centeredness is not the answer. Self sufficiency isn't the answer. Revelation 3.17 speaks of a group of people, a church, that said, we have need of nothing. Wow. Totally self-sufficient. David was self-sufficient when he counted his army. Joab said, David, don't do this, don't do this. And he did, and he found out, what, that he had 1.5 million or some unbelievable number of Soldiers and the Lord convicted him. His heart convicted him because now he ha, he was tempted to trust in himself, not in the Lord. Self sufficiency is not the answer. Self condemnation is not the answer. Many of us go through life kicking ourselves in the rear all through life because we condemning ourselves. Paul writes, "There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ." Self comparison certainly isn't the answer second corinthians ten twelve Paul says, "Those of us who compare ourselves with ourselves and measure themselves by ourselves are without understanding in his famous chapter on pride and mere christianity c s Lewis points out that pride is by nature competitive. We're talking now about comparing ourselves with others. Are you competitive? I am I like to win." but it is competitiveness that is at the very heart of pride. C.S. Lewis writes, Pride gets no pleasure of out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next person. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they are not. They are proud of being richer, cleverer, or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there would be nothing to be proud about. Very insightful. Self-comparison is not the answer. Self-promotion is not the answer. Proverbs twenty-seven two says, let another man praise you and not your own lips, a stranger even and not your own mouth. You know I'm on Facebook, but sometimes I think Facebook and Instagram are nothing more than flesh on parade. Look at me. Look who I'm with. Look what I have done. Look where I am. Self-promotion. Trying to justify our existence by promoting ourselves. Well, self-productivity or performance isn't the answer. What am I to do my, with myself? Self-productivity. Jesus got on to Martha because she was so productive, and yet she was worried and bothered about producing. Performance would be in this same area. Self-productivity, performance. Many of us are performance-driven. Listen to what Madonna said in an interview in Vogue magazine some time ago, this is what she says. Quote, my drive in life comes from a fear of being mediocre. That is always pushing me. I push past one spell of it and discover myself as a special human being, but then I feel I am still mediocre and uninteresting unless I do something else. Because even though I have become somebody, I still have to prove that I am somebody. My struggle has never ended, and I guess it never will, end quote. Tell you one thing, Madonna knows herself better than most of us know ourselves. Our ego will never be satisfied through productivity or performance. Self-abasement obviously is not the answer. Colossians two twenty three. Paul says, "Don't don't be like this. These religious people who self-abase themselves. Have you have you seen those folks um, mostly on Easter on television? They're climbing up steps and they're flagellating themselves, self-abasing themselves. Well, these aren't the answer. What is? Hang on, and we'll find out." I can't. I've called your name so broken I am. And you showed up and patched me up like you do every time I get empty. Crosswalk, Colorado Springs on 100.7 Don't worry. Welcome back. Bob Bender here. We're talking about what about Bob? And we're talking about what about you because what we're discussing has to do with the very essence of who you are and how God made you and what God expects of us. And I've listed some areas, some suggestions ahead, not those directions. One last one is, what what am I to do with myself? Obviously, self-hatred is not the answer. We live in a day when suicide is at uh, epic proportions. Uh, Judas hated himself and went out and killed himself, committed suicide. Uh, Of course, that's not the answer. Well, what is? Hang with me. Hang with me. Again, we're going to get in deep waters, but it's going to change your life. The article, Hey, I'm Terrific, in an issue of Newsweek, tells of the preoccupation that America society has with the concept of self-esteem. The Bulletin of the National Council for Self-Esteem, Self-Esteem Today, lists 10 national and regional conferences in one year that were aimed at removing negative self-images from society. California appointed a state commission to promote self-esteem. The idea is also popular in places like Minnesota, home of the very important kid, program for encouraging self-esteem in three- to six-year-olds. And in Maryland, where a state task force counted more than a thousand ways in which citizens were already working to improve their self-esteem. So what we're talking about really reminds me of, of Jesus' command. He said, "'Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself.'" So we're really addressing this issue of self-love. This current philosophy stresses the need to love oneself as the basis for the good life. You can't love your neighbor unless you love yourself. That's what we hear from the world. That's what we hear in Psychobabble. That's what we hear in, regrettably, some of our pulpits. You can't love your neighbor unless you love yourself is a favorite phrase of this movement. It's the world's answer to a very real problem. For example, in one year, teams of high school students from six countries competed in a test to reveal their proficiency in mathematical skills. The first part of the competition concerned each member's performance. The second part was to determine how they felt about their performance. The team from the United States placed last in their mathematical proficiency, but first in how they felt about their performance. Well, I get it. <laughs> the team from Japan was first in mathematical proficiency, but last in how they felt about their performance. So I'm left with a conundrum. Do I feel good about my bad performance, or do I feel badly about my good performance? The obvious answer is neither. It seems today that the greatest commandment is not to love God first, or even to love your neighbor, but thou shalt love thyself. John Stott expresses it this way, A chorus of many voices is chanting in unison today that I must at all costs love myself end quote. Is this true? Self-love includes and relates to other terms, such as they're not exactly equal, but they're in the same genre of thought. We're talking about self-esteem, positive self-image, self-regard, self-worth, feeling good about yourself, liking yourself, being fond of yourself, and so on. Simply put, it means that a person has a positive attitude about himself and feels good about himself. Self-love then becomes an emotion or an attitude. The theory today is that large segments of society are suffering from low self-image or a lack of self-love. Often this is said to be a special problem among the evangelical Christians because of the stress we put on being a depraved sinner, and oftentimes coming to church and getting spanked every Sunday about how badly we are performing and what poor sinners we are. Many assert that loving yourself is the biblical thing to do. Is this true? Jesus calls us, yes, Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine, to love our neighbor as ourselves. Listen, Jesus here does not command us to love ourselves. He is assuming we already do. We are to love our neighbors and have the same caring attitude toward our neighbors as we have toward ourselves. Paul says the same thing in Ephesians 5, that we are to nurture and cherish our wives as we would nurture and cherish our own bodies. He's assuming we already do. We already automatically and instinctively possess a concern for ourselves. Jesus is obviously saying, since you love yourself, do likewise to your neighbor. In fact, Jesus quite plainly stated There is a great commandment and a second, love your neighbor. He did not say there was a third, love yourself. The command to love yourself is never given in Scripture. The basis of the self-love theory, it goes something like this. I am lovable, therefore I should love myself. We should stand in the mirror every morning we get up and just talk to ourselves and tell ourselves how lovable we are. The basis of our lovability is not then performance, but merely our humanness or being a part of the human family. I'm lovable because I exist. That's what that means. Conclusions from this line of thinking are disconcerting. One conclusion of I'm lovable because I exist is that if a marriage partner who works and sacrifices and is the best mate possible should not be considered any more lovable than the one who is unfaithful and neglects the children. If nothing I do will make any difference in my acceptability to you, then why bother? Another erroneous conclusion is that if I don't love myself, it's really a form of selfishness. Listen to this. Because in not loving myself, I rob others of the benefit of who I am. It's easy to see that I am lovable, therefore I should love myself, has no scriptural and little logical support, circular reasoning, and psychobabble. The Continental Divide is a geological phenomenon that is not readily seen to the naked eye. Most people cross it without even realizing they have done so. It is, of course, a ridge along the Rocky Mountains that divides the water that flows toward the Atlantic Ocean and toward the Pacific. To think theoretically that a drop of rain landing one inch to the east of that line will begin to wind its course toward the Atlantic, and if the rain had blown it over a little an inch to the west, it would have headed to the Pacific is truly amazing. A small difference in the location of the raindrops when they hit the earth will mean all the difference in the world in the direction of their flow and their ultimate destination. What I'm saying is, in this same way, when we speak of making a distinction in loving ourselves, we're not talking about trivial differences here. The biblical message is God-centered at its heart and not man-centered. These two systems— a God-centered way of living, and a man-centered way of living become a continental divide. Where you begin will ultimately determine where you end. What, then, is a biblical approach to self-love or self-worth? Well, it's always easier to wound than heal and throw stones at windows rather than rebuilding them, so the question comes to our minds, if not self-love, then what? If I shouldn't love myself, then should I hate myself? What does the Bible say? The Bible is God's owner's manual and is the greatest book ever written on personality and identity and everything we need. In fact, the Bible speaks to the very opposite of loving ourselves. In Second Timothy, the third chapter, verses 1 and following, this saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of a bishop, he desires a good thing— well, let's not turn to 1 Timothy. Let's turn to 2 Timothy, Bob, and get the right verse here. Understand this in the last days, there will come a time of difficulty. For people will be lovers of selves, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, and heartless. So the Bible tells us that in the last days, the lovers of self will be those who are anti-Christian. What then are we to do with ourselves? Hang on. I'll tell you. This is Crosswalk, Colorado Springs, on 100.7 The Word. Welcome back. We're in deep water. I told you we would be we're trying to figure out, what am I to do with myself? What then is a biblical approach to self-love or self-worth? The biblical approach to man's worth is that our worth is based on two things. First, that we're made in the image of God. We're of great worth because we're made in God's image. We have the capacity to know God. Secondly, you're a person of great worth because of the great sacrifice God paid for you. Now, I don't want to convey the fact that Christ dying for man is based on man's value. This is not, it's not a business deal. Like when you go buy a car, you want the price to equal the car. Obviously, that's not the case with Jesus' redemption. That's the greatest price that was ever paid. The greatest act of grace the world has ever known by no means does it mean to equate that the purchase price, the blood of Christ, is to be equaled with what was purchased, our souls bound for a devil's hell. To attempt to do so is to fail to see the grace of God for what He is. The question then becomes, did Christ die for us because we were worthy, or despite the fact that we were unworthy? You guessed it. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is not a demonstration of the worth of man, but of the grace of God. Martin Luther describes it. God does not love us because we are invaluable. We are valuable because God loves us. So to find our worth and significant, obviously we don't look upward. Uh, we do look upward. We don't look inward or outward. We look to the Lord. So let's consider what are we to do with ourselves. We live in a day when, quite frankly, the implicit message I hear from a lot of churches is that performance does not matter, performance or obedience to God does not matter because he accepts me unconditionally as I am. I am unconditionally loved. Well, there's a group and individuals who take this too far they take it so far that coming to the conclusion that obedience, then, doesn't mean anything. Obviously, when we disobey, our fellowship with the Lord's broken, and we need to confess our sins because we're out of fellowship, not relationship. And so, we need to be reminded that obedience does matter to God. John fourteen twenty one. Jesus says, He who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me, and he who loves me, I will love him and will manifest myself to him. You see, there's a difference between our state with the Lord and our standing with the Lord. Our standing with the Lord, uh, we are without condemnation. But what about our state? Are we in fellowship with the Lord? How does this matter of performance relate or obedience relate to our need of a healthy self image? Anthony Hokema writes, though the Christian self image is rooted in divine grace, one cannot expect to continue to enjoy a positive self image if he is living irresponsibly. I submit to you, that's my end quote there, I submit to you that sinful living is the greatest enemy of a healthy self-image. The prodigal son had a terrible self-image. Why? Because he was living in sin. Let me tell you, friend, Jesus loves you just as you are. Yes, I agree. But he loves you so much that he does not want you to stay there. What then am I to do with myself? On the one hand, I can have such a poor self-image that I can lead to self-pity and self-depreciation and self-hatred, even suicide. It's like walking down the street and someone doesn't say hi to you, and our downward mental spiral goes something like this, he didn't say hi to me. I don't think he likes me. In fact, I don't think anyone likes me. Come to think of it, I'm unlikable. Of course, that's a downward spiral. On the other hand, I can have such good feelings about myself that it leads to self-consciousness. Very important. Hang on to that. Self-appreciation, self-centeredness, or pride. Whereas, on the one hand, inferiority becomes a problem. On the other hand, superiority becomes a problem. A man who spends all day in the health club cannot do any more for others than the person in the hospital bed. So, are there only two options available, a very good self-image, or a very bad one? Obviously, a person who lives in the constant awareness of failure and guilt is not going to be an effective spouse, parent, neighbor, or fruitful Christian. Neither is the person who lives in constant awareness of the successes of his or her life or his or her powerful persona. In medicine, some cures produce side effects almost as detrimental as the disease itself. Excessive self-love may be as bad or worse than low self-esteem, especially when one notices the great amount of biblical content against pride. Naturally, a person who loves himself in the the sense of being self-centered and prideful is not the way to go. Neither is the one who hates himself, resulting in a low self-esteem and fear. Neither alternative is acceptable. There's more excellent way, says Paul. What then's the biblical approach to answer the question? What about Bob? What am I to do with myself? Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.2, he says, I don't care what other people say about me. They're not my judge. In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.2, I don't even judge myself. It is the Lord who judges me. So, what am I to do with myself? Biblical alternative is simple. Here is what the Bible says we are to do about ourselves in this area of self-love. The Bible says we too are to accept ourselves. David writes in Psalm 139, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. He came to the place of accepting himself. Someone once said, I really believe that God loves me, and I appreciate that deeply, but God loves a whole bunch of people I don't like. I just happen to be one of them. Do you feel like that sometimes? I do. I grew up with a poor self-image, but it wasn't until I met the Lord and he began to show me what I was like in his eyes and how he had made me, and therefore I can accept especially the unchangeables in our lives. These include our parents, our race, our abilities, yes, our gender, and we'll deal with that in another program, our birth order, the number and types of brothers and sisters, and especially our physical features and personality bent. You see, I grew up a freckle-faced redhead. If it wasn't for my physical stature, I would have been bullied more than I was. So I had to learn to accept how God made me, do you have you come to that place? Most of us can relate to Woody Allen, who said, "My only regret in life is that I'm not somebody else. Accept your lot in life and regard life's unchangeables as ordained by God in ephesians two ten You are God's workmanship. The Greek word there is poem. He has your picture on his refrigerator. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. Yes, the answer to self-love is to yes, except how God has uniquely made each one of us. And then secondly, what am I to do with myself? I am to understand who I am in Christ. That's identity. Jesus in John 13 knew, verse 1, he knew from where he came, he knew where he was going, Then he took the towel, wrapped it around his waist, and washed and wiped the disciples' feet. A healthy self-image is seeing yourself as God sees you. Then you are free to serve others. Understand who you are in Jesus. Accept whom God has made you to be, those unchangeables, and then we'll close with some powerful things we can do. What about ourselves? Yeah, talk talk, right Crosswalk, Colorado Springs on 100.7 The Word. Good Almighty, I hope find me. We're talking about. What about Bob? What about Bill? What about Jennifer and Jared? What about you? Does the Bible really command us to love ourselves? We're finding that, no, Jesus assumed as much. Then what are we to do with ourselves? We are to accept How God Made Us. It's so very, very important. It'll free you in life if you'll just, Lord, this is the way you made me. I'll avoid the temptation what God has not wrought. I went out and bought. I'll just be who God has called me to be. It's freeing. Then secondly, we are to understand who we are in Christ. We're going to have our lead pastor, Dr. Matt Morton, address this issue of identity in one of our programs. It's so very, very important understanding who we are in Christ, what God has done for us spiritually, the I am's of Scripture. If Christ is in your heart, I am in Christ, a new creature. I'm crucified with Christ. I'm forgiven. I'm a saint. Paul begins the letter to the most carnal church in the New Testament world, reminding the Corinthians, look, you're a saint. He tells them twice. I have the righteousness of God. I'm sanctified. I'm justified. I'm an heir of God and a joint heir with Christ. I'm reigning with Christ. I'm complete in Christ. I'm no longer a slave to sin, but a slave to righteousness. I'm my beloved, and he is mine. What are we to do with ourselves? We are to understand who we are in Christ. Praise the Lord. And then thirdly, we are to experience God's full forgiveness. Uh, People say... You are to forgive yourself. Well, that's not in the Bible. What they mean is, hopefully, you are to fully experience the forgiveness of God. Like Simon Peter, when he rejected the Lord, he went out and wept bitterly. I mean, he was low because of what he had just done, denied the Lord. And then, of course, two chapters later, three chapters later, the Lord brings him to this same fire, the charcoal fire, the same charcoal fire, Simon Peter denied the Lord in John 18. Jesus brings him that, that same smell. Can you imagine? Wow. And then Jesus bringing him back into fellowship. You see, one of Satan's most effective lies is you failed and are unworthy of love and deserve to be blamed and condemned. Satan continues to deceive us into believing that the basis of our worth is our ability to please others. He attempts and succeeds in many cases to keep us bound to our past. Imagine me introducing one of our children. This is my daughter Susie, who stained the carpet with grape juice when she was two. Many of us think that's the way God looks at us. Unfortunately, that's exactly the way many of us look at others. Our Father, Heavenly Father has no use for such memories. When we fail, the results can be devastating, though they not need be. When we fail, we're not only to experience Christ's forgiveness, we are to forgive others. We are to fully experience the Lord's forgiveness. That's why we daily come before the Lord and ask Him to cleanse us as we confess our sins and agree with them to the Lord. And then we are, yes, to die to ourselves and lose ourselves in Christ and in others. Jesus said, both in Luke and in Matthew, take up your cross daily and follow me, for if you lose your life in me, you will find it. So my word to you at this point is, get lost. (laughs) Yes, yes lose ourselves in Jesus. When I became a Christian and lost myself in the Lord, I began to experience the fullness of of a human being, a a positive self-image as it were. Like, remember when you were romancing that girl or that guy, you you thought about them all the time. You'd lost yourself in them, and the same way We are to lose ourselves in Jesus. If you lose your life, you will find it. Die to ourselves. Paul says, I die daily. So daily, can I encourage you to begin the day, Lord, I surrender to you. You know who your greatest enemy in the Christian life is? Yourself. And God has made arrangements so that that can be taken care of as we die. Paul says, I die daily as we come to the cross of Jesus and co-crucified, as it were, and co-resurrected with his resurrection life we then are free to serve others do not use your liberty selfishly but to serve others isaiah 58:10 says when you give yourself to the hungry and the needy your gloom becomes like midday and your light shines brighter when we give ourselves away no greater feeling we find self fulfillment there and as we simply Get lost in the Lord. You see, there's a sense in which the biblical alternative of self-love is to have no self-consciousness at all. Tim Keller's written a great book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And on pages 20, uh, 32 and 33, he says, The thing we would remember from meeting a truly gospel-humble person is how much they seem to be totally interested in us. Because the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or thinking less of myself. Listen, it is thinking of myself less. Losing ourselves in Jesus. True gospel humility, I read on, means I am stopped connecting with every experience, conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. It is the freedom of self-forgetfulness. A truly gospel humble person is not a self-hating person or a self-loving person, but a self-forgetful person whose egos is just like his or her toes. They just work. It does not draw attention to itself. The toes just work. The ego just works, neither drawing attention to itself. End quote. Could I encourage you to die to yourself and you can't self-crucify yourself. You've got to ask the Lord to do that. Lose yourself in Jesus and in others. And by changing the direction of our emotional focus from inward to upward and outward, we alleviate the destructive result of self-centered emotions and realize the blessings of giving ourselves away wholeheartedly to God and others. You see, the essence of love is that true love demands self-forgetfulness, The acid test is always self-forgetfulness. This can only occur when we die to ourselves and live for Jesus. This does not mean we eliminate self-evaluation. I'm not talking about eliminating self-image altogether. I'm talking about eliminating self-image from our conscious awareness. That's the key. Dwight L. Moody was right when he said, I have more trouble with myself than any other person I have ever met. End quote. True for all of us, isn't it? But when we plug into God's plan for accepting ourselves and understanding who we are in Jesus, experiencing fully God's forgiveness when we blow it, and losing ourselves in Christ and others, it's then that we become our truest selves, the ones God has intended us to be. As we humble ourselves before the Lord, the Lord resists the proud, but he gives greater grace to the humble. I was in my pastor's office this last Sunday having the privilege of preaching at my church, and up on the wall, Dr. Matt Morton has these words, Thou art the Christ, I am only a man. You know who said that? Simon Peter. He said in Matthew 16, Thou art the Christ, in Acts 10, I am only a man. Let's keep that straight. Let the Lord be the Lord, and recognize we're only people, and find our true selves in the Lord. Well, God bless you. I hope you're not confused anymore, and you'll find yourself, true self, in the Lord. Have a great weekend. I love you. God loves you. See you later.